Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 138 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hey. And my husband Dylan is our sound recordist. Closet hey. So he's saying closet hey because (laughs) Dylan's parents are in town in LA, and they've rented this Airbnb, and we decided to record from it, and we decided that the best room in the Airbnb is this walk-in closet. Yeah, because the place is very echoey. This closet is the size of certain people's rooms. Yes, this is, I honestly, this is the size of our apartment's bedroom. It's pretty crazy. And Andrew, you're also in a different place. Yes, I'm recording from Bailey and uh, my childhood home in a room that used to be called the Cyber Lair because there used to be a big old computer in it. We called it the Mad Room because you would go there when you're mad. Oh, yeah, I thought it was an but acronym that, for in a like second. retrospect, is really depressing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, how often were like, you guys in, like, mad? Pretty dark. It wasn't us. It was it was my dad's name Sp- for it. Specifically, oh. our dad. But like, it's one of those things that you think is totally normal, and then you yeah. grow up and you're like, but wait. <laughs> yeah, I brought it up to to Jillian at one point, and she's like, "Whoa, that's <laughs> that. No, people don't have that. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have a room in your house dedicated to anger." <laughs> Makes me think of those uh, businesses where you can pay to break stuff, and I've always wanted to go to one oh, of those. Oh, yeah. I think I would love to do that. They did that as a date on The Bachelor once. Guys, we're a Bachelor podcast now. Oh, hard turn. <laughs> okay, guys, what do you think of John Paul Jones? All right, well, we have a lot of things to talk about this week before we start with our reviews. Number one, have you guys seen the meme that's going around that's started by Chex Mix that's like, if you don't have a bookmark, use Chex Mix instead? Okay, yeah, this is a Twitter thing. It's real dumb. I almost hesitate to talk about it, but it is infuriating uh, what they call themselves library or hashtag library Twitter. Mm-hmm. So the meme is uh, there's a picture that, that says, don't have a bookmark, use blank. And the first one was Chex Mix, and it says, don't have a bookmark, use Chex Mix. And the picture on the left is a book with a bunch of Chex Mix in it. Yep. And the picture on the right is the book closed around a big old pile of crushed Chex Mix. Yeah. And then other people have been doing like, use milk instead or yeah. whatever. The Oreos and milk one is particularly upsetting looking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The vitamin water one is pretty bad. Yeah. Bailey, as someone who's a connoisseur of the smell of books, aren't you a little curious what this might add to it? <sighs> Here's the thing about me smelling books, you guys. Yes, I do it. Yes, it's part of my life. Yes, I've accepted it's part of who I am. But it's not like I, you know, expect to smell Chex Mix. Like, I like the smell of books. It's like you like the smell of cut grass. You like the smell of coffee. You're just saying it's not a progression towards eating books. Right. You're not smelling them because you're interested in what is making this book smell different. I like the different, you know, flavors, as you will. But <laughs> oh, see now, every time you try and explain yourself more, it feels it's, like you're edging towards. Sounds more books. like you're going to eat a book, apparently. <laughs> I'm just imagining. I bet you could deep fry a book to the point where you could eat it. Follow us on Instagram. Dude. <laughs> that's that's our next. Toby, I dare you to do that. <laughs> Um, one other thing we wanted to talk about was the drama coming out about Margaret Atwood's new book, The Testaments. Um, Amazon sent out the books early and it's, you know, prompted a lot of independent booksellers to get up in a rage. The Testaments is a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. And so there's a lot of hype around it. Some might say this is like the biggest book of the year, the biggest 
anticipated book of the year. But Amazon claimed that it was a mistake, but sent out the books, the pre-ordered books early. And that affects booksellers who wanted, you know, to have a big opening day. And the, the, and the booksellers also, they have the books right now. Oh, they, they could be selling there. them. We could yeah. go over there and yeah. get them. But no, no, but they were under strict instructions yeah. not to release it before this day. So they're following the rules. And there's going to be a bunch of people running around with those books out, out and everything. Out and the world. people go to the bookstore like, where's that book? I want that book. My friend Joanne has that book. <laughs> and they're like, you have to wait till next week. And they're like, Joanne, you keep fooling me. <laughs> Joanne keeps reading her sentences aloud from it. <laughs> <laughs> also, though, uh, people tried hacking into Margaret Atwood's computer to steal the testaments. Uh, Man. By like, using a phishing attack on her email. Russians? Russians. Really? <laughs> I'm just imagining, what is that Venn di- diagram of a person who like knows how to initiate a phishing scam and also really, really wants <laughs> the testaments? Millennials. Like, that's okay. Good it's, burn. It's Joanne. 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 <laughs> She'll stop at nothing. <laughs> All right. So two more things I wanted to talk about before the review. Number one, does anyone have any shame? No. I have a lot. <laughs> ah! So just as a quick preface... Jillian, I think inspired partly by this podcast, has been on a real book reading and buying binge recently, which is great and cool Mm. and and great for her. But I happen to go along with her a bunch and I can't help (laughs) myself. So from the Greenlight Bookstore in Brooklyn, I picked up copies of Immigrant Montana by Amitava Kumar and The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. It's The Turn of the Screw and other ghost stories. I've always wanted to read that. I was especially excited to buy that one because it's going to be the basis for the not sequel, but like next version of the Haunting of Hill House anthology series. They're going to continue with the same creators, a la American Horror Story, doing different adaptations. And this next one's going to be the turn of the screw. That's cool. And then we went to Seattle and we went to more bookstores and I bought more books, but I'll save them for next time because (laughs) the shame shame is just too deep right now. Well, I just have one shame, and I'm just going to throw it in at the end so nobody notices, because Andrew just had a lot of shame. Andrew uh, only had two. You're right. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I, I, we were in Telluride for the film festival. My favorite place in the world is the bookstore there. I felt guilty not buying a book. So I bought The Whisper Man by Alex North, which is a new sort of horror story that's really popular on Instagram. So I bought that. Nice. So both me and my brother have some shame. Wait, Billy, I need you to say that again in the correct way. What? The Whisperman. I bought The Whisperman. I bought The Whisperman. All right, so it's that time, you guys. We've been waiting for it. Listeners have been clamoring for it. It's time for Dylan's Cupboard Under the Stairs. heroes landed uh, at the Weasleys. Uh, Bill and Floor were about to have their wedding and everything. So a lot of wedding prep slash not dying slash wedding prep. Priorities keep juggling back and forth. Um, and I just realized I've been looking at this name the whole time. Scrimger? Scrimgar. I, yeah, I thought I Scrimgior. Scrimgar. I, I thought okay. it was like Scrimgar. Uh, he pops up because guys, I don't even know this. Dumbledore died. I think you made that exact joke on the last Dylan's And we keep corner. making this joke until it's funny. Um, <laughs> but because he died, he had left a will. And guess who he left all his stuff to? Scrimgeour. 
Big Doug. The kids. Well, oh. <laughs> good one, though. <laughs> that was a good catch, though, because Scrimgeour, uh, being like the TSA, had to uh, scan everything. So in between these two books, they've been trying to look at these contraptions that Dumbledore had left them, including a deluminator uh, mm-hmm. for Ron. They gave Hermione a book. Typical. Of, Typical. Of, and then they gave uh, Harry uh, a snitch. The first snitch uh, oh, yeah. from the first game and everything. So this, these whole chapters yeah, were a lot of balancing of like, I wonder if these are all context clues from like the previous six books or like these are all brand new things. I guess I'll never know. I mean, you'll keep, you'll know if you keep nah, reading. I'm done. <laughs> this is the last one. Wait till you see what Harry has to do with that snitch. <laughs> so there's a secret note uh, that Dumbledore left in his amazing cursive handwriting. Yeah, they, always, they always talk about that, don't they? Yeah. Um, so yeah, the wedding kicks off. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of names being thrown at me, including our good friend, Xenophilius Lovegood. Yeah, Luna, Luna's dad. Yeah, well, yeah, no, Luna's there. They're all wearing awesome uh, matching clothes. Okay. Mm-hmm. As it, you do as a family. Yeah. You don't go to weddings with your dad in matching <laughs> <laughs> Man, I didn't I didn't give any of this stuff a second glance when I first read this book. <laughs> of course, my boy, Victor Crumb, is there. Uh, Your boy? Weirdly, the guy I thought that won the Wisdom Cup. Oh, okay, yeah. And he's also there to explain that Xenophilius's tie has a weird symbol on it that, guys, I think it's going to come back later because it's like a triangle and like an eye on it. Yeah. This evil symbol it like is really tattooed everywhere, and it's also in the Universal Studios gift shop, so I don't know how evil it is. <laughs> mm. um, I wonder if you could buy that tie. That'd be a good thing to buy. Ooh, okay. I'm sure you could. You should get one for you and one for your daughter. <laughs> for all the build-up for the wedding, it's only two pages of like the whole ceremony, yeah. which is kind of interesting to see a wizard wedding. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not about Bill. It's about Harry Potter. So what's he going through right now? Well, he is... Hanging out with people that are getting drunk and getting, of course, into political arguments because these are two families coming together, including the lot of information of Aphelius Doge, who wrote the biography about Dumbledore, and Auntie Muriel, who I guess just hates Dumbledore and is letting it all come out at this wedding, and you get a whole lot more Dumbledore backstory about his squib sister. Basically, they're all, all Dumbledores are dead now. That's the takeaway from the wedding. Okay. Um, and they're buried somewhere called Godric's Hollow. I'm assuming this is also important as well, because that is where everyone is buried. But who knows? A huge Patronus cat comes. It's Kingsley Shacklebolts, because Kingsley Shacklebolts' voice comes out and says, the ministry has fallen. Scrim... Scrimgeour. Scrimgeour is Scrimgeour. dead. They are coming. End of chapter. Uh, and you just put it down and you're like, I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And that has been Dylan's Covered Under the Stairs. Dylan, 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 Dylan. It's just like watching somebody slap something you love <laughs> over again. <laughs> All right. This week on the podcast, Andrew had a book chosen at random from his shelf. That book was... Bossy Pants by Tina Fey. Ooh. 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 Yes, please. Oh, no, that's, nope, that's, that's a different, different one. one. Yes, yes, I want to hear that review, please. <laughs> All right, so I had Bossy Pants, the number one bestseller in 2011. Um, so Tina Fey's pithy memoir charts her journey from young theater nerd in suburban Philadelphia to an older theater, film, television nerd with stops at the Second City in Chicago, Saturday Night Live, and a summer drama camp. It's full of advice, anecdotes, and a lot of jokes, And Tina Fey tells her life story with her trademark voice, 
hilarious, absurd, and occasionally problematic. Ooh, mm. occasionally problematic. We'll get a bit to that in a minute. Okay. So I want to start with what I liked about the book. Uh, it really flew along. Um, like the saying goes, like you can read this book in one sitting, or I read it in a couple of hours. And sometimes I say that, but I don't think I've ever actually meant it because I'm mm-hmm. naturally a pretty slow reader. But this book, basically I read it in a day. It really clips along and you can read it in a matter of two sittings if you want. And that's with a lunch break. So, so that's fun. Um that's that's going to be Andrew's new catchphrase, and that's with a lunch break. <laughs> and that's with a lunch break. Um, if you're a fan of 30 Rock or Unbreakable Kimmy, Kimmy Schmidt or Mean Girls or any of her voice, her voice really does shine through, and at least the voice of those television programs shines through in this book, and it feels like reading an extension of that universe. So I thought she did a really good job staying true to what she finds funny in this book. Up to the point, and including like some of the absurdest things that happen in those shows, she will play with form and like throw in something that like shouldn't be allowed in a book, which I found really entertaining. Um, so, most of the book is delivered in sort of a faux advice style. It's like directly directly addressing the person reading it and using a lot of tropes from sort of schmaltzy advice books, telling you how to better live your life or how to do whatever um Mm. so she has a lot of fun playing with that format and also um breaking that format which is where a lot of the sort of fun comes from here's an example of that and it's from page 131 of my copy and this is from a section where she's uh going through pearls of wisdom she learned from lorne michaels this is number two the show doesn't go on because it's ready it goes on because it's 11 30 This is something Lauren has often said about Saturday Night Live, but I think it's a great lesson about not being too precious about your writing. You have to try your hardest to be at the top of your game and improve every joke you can until the last possible second, and then you have to let it go. You can't be that kid standing at the top of a water slide overthinking it. You have to go down that chute. And I'm from a generation where a lot of people died on water slides, so this was an important (laughs) lesson for me to learn. (laughs) That's great. I should take that to heart when I'm slaving over editing the podcast and like, should I keep this in? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's solid advice. And so that's a good example of where she sort of marries the genuine advice portion of the book with her sort of trademark wit. Like each of the chapters has a, a very distinct theme. There's one on being a new mom, about balancing work and, and family, one specifically about 30 Rock, one specifically about the summer she spent at a theater camp. It's very segmented. And then near the end, on page 265, there's a new section, uh, which I will actually read to you in its entirety. It's entitled, What Turning 40 Means to Me. I need to take my pants off as soon as I get home. I didn't used to have to do that, but now I do. End of section. (laughs) And that follows about four sections that are closer to the 40 page mark, 35, 40 pages. Um, And so to come across that was really surprising and and really genuinely funny. Um, (laughs) There were sections of the book that I liked more than others. Um, I thought it was particularly interesting when she was talking about 30 Rock and its development and juggling that and her appearances on Saturday Night Live, specifically when she was appearing as Sarah Palin, um, because all of that sort of happened at the same time. And just getting sort of the inside scoop of how that worked was really cool. Um, 
I think it's also no accident that those chapters are the longest in the book because sometimes it clipped along so much that I had to like correct my neck for whiplash because things were like over in a second. Um, but she allows herself to go a little deeper there. And also I just found it interesting because I don't often think about how a television show becomes a television show. So it was interesting to hear that side. Um, also, I like that she she goes out of her way to give credit to people who helped her along the way. Um, in particular, the writers who she started 30 Rock with, like her original writing group. Um, she went through and like called out things that they brought to the table and specifically like included sections of the script that they had written to say like, this was something really cool that they did. This is their MVP joke is I think what she calls it. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was fun because, you know, when you see a show that's so closely associated with a person, you like sort of assume it's all them or it's easy to be like, okay, this is this person's sense of humor. So it was fun to see like Robert Carlock's specific joke or Donald Glover's specific joke before he blew up. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was fun. She also tries to take a tone of being self-deprecating and show that she doesn't always do everything right. But that sort of leads me to the cons of the book. There were like a couple of jokes slash anecdotes in this book that actually genuinely made me uncomfortable. Like they just kind of went too far for me or weren't balanced correctly. (laughs) It's awkward to criticize someone who you admire because I genuinely do like her TV shows. But like Mm -hmm. there are a couple of sections that just didn't ring appropriate to me. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of a section talking about her dad growing up, which is an anecdote about what made him admirable. And it has something to do with him, like not being afraid of two young black men. And it really didn't leave a good taste. And there's another section uh, when she's in college, she's talking about attractiveness and it's also sort of tied to race. And it it didn't feel like very 2019 to me. Mm. And so that kind of left a bad taste throughout the reading. But like mostly the positives outweighed that. And, you know, what it could be is this book is eight years old. It was published in 2011. And while eight years, like, in the grand scheme of human history isn't very long, it's a long time for, like, the maturing sensitivities and sensibilities of, like, taste. Yeah. And I'm wondering if I read this in 2011 or 2012, if I'd have the same, like, bucking. Because the culture has changed a lot in those eight years. And uh, huge societal shifts have happened. And I think that that was maybe what I'm bucking against. I don't know. It did take away from the book for me a little bit reading it now. Yeah, I do hear that. It's it, I honestly feel a little guilty because I did read it right when it came out. I was really this is one of those like pre-orders for me and I think I gave it 5 stars. I didn't think twice about that, but as you're saying it, it's like, yes, that's very problematic. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's also so quick like you scan over it and like if I had to didn't have to go back and present a review of this, I don't know how much I would have thought about it, but I had to mm-hmm. sort of clock as I was going how the book was making me feel so I like couldn't avoid it that makes a lot of sense yeah I've said this a lot throughout the review but I think it is not to this book's benefit how quick it is Uh, like I like that I could read it quickly but I found myself like having to double check to make sure I had like not skipped a chapter Because Mm. it goes from, like, her getting an initial job at Second City, 15 pages later, she's working for SNL, 10 pages after that, she's on her honeymoon, we don't actually, like, see the moment where she meets her husband or get any information about that. They're just, like, on their honeymoon all of a sudden. Yeah, I I remember that from the book. I remember thinking, like, is she just not wanting to to tell about her personal life or something? Because, yeah, it was really jarring. Yeah, she definitely, she goes pretty personal in her childhood. Mm Mm-hmm. And then she, like, 
rockets through her professional career until where we are today. And then she delves deeper again into like 30 Rock and into sort of the stuff that's going on more modernly. Hmm. I sort of felt like she could have made each of the chapters in the book like 10 pages longer and it would have been totally fine. The print in the book is also gigantic. So if it had just (laughs) shrunk down a little bit and then added the pages, it probably still would have been the same length. And (laughs) I think it would have been great. (laughs) <laughs> so like ultimately it was a really compelling and interesting read especially if you like tina fey's work because it is very true to her voice i think ultimately the things that made me uncomfortable are outweighed by the like pleasant experience of reading this book but i did want to clock them because it was a part of my reading so overall i'm gonna rate this book three stars okay three stars three stars, three stars. Three stars. I, three stars. like honestly it might be a three and a half at, like it's also sort of the nature of reviews that you try to give equal parts to like what you liked and didn't like. I did. I do want to underline that I enjoyed it a lot, um, but I have some misgivings. So I think three stars is right about fair. And I will keep it because technically Jillian owns this book. <laughs> Throw out Jillian's And I book. probably would have kept it anyway. Just put a bunch of checks mix in it. <laughs> Dylan said just put a bunch of checks mix in it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's great. Um, good review. Toby, do you have any facts on this unknown um Christina Fay. Her name is not Christina. Yeah, her full name is Elizabeth Stamatina Fay, which is actually interesting because um, if you guys are a fan of 30 Rock, obviously uh, the main character in 30 Rock is named Liz Elizabeth, Liz Lemon. Oh. Um, so she was born May 18th, 1970. Um, so yeah, her big kind of rise to fame came from Saturday Night Live, um, but she came up through the improv comedy group The Second City in Chicago. And then once she kind of graduated up through the ranks at Saturday Night Live, um, she got her own show, 30 Rock, which some critics said had a rocky start, um, but then was very, very well received by the end of its run. And she's created the Netflix show The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. She's also written um, and starred in many movies. Um, some of the biggest ones are Baby Mama, Date Night. She wrote on Megamind, uh, The Muppets Movie, The uh, Sisters, and the one that maybe is a cultural touchstone for our generation is Mean Girls. Um, she has been lauded with quite a lot of awards. Um, she's received nine Primetime Evie Awards, three Golden Globe Awards, five Screen Actors Guild Awards, seven Writers Guild of America Awards. She's been awarded the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor, and she's the youngest ever recipient of that award. Cool. That's leaving out that the only other recipient was Mark Twain himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So she said originally she did not uh, succeed immediately at SNL. She struggled. Her first sketch to air uh, starred Chris Farley in a Sally Jesse Raphael satire. And there's actually, I was curious if this was mentioned in the book, because basically she said she started to succeed more and more at writing at the show but then she felt that she was overweight and she lost 30 pounds and then she said basically they were interested in putting her on camera does that mention that in her memoir it doesn't mention the story in that way she has Mm -hmm. a section she has two dual sections um called remembrance of being very very skinny and remembrance of being a little bit fat that go hand in Mm -hmm. hand that then lead into her being put on camera but she doesn't make that connection in the book it seems like she does link that pretty closely and it's something that she kind of um, typically kind of skewers and also kind of shines a spotlight on is like, you know, if you watch her comedy, it is very much about the way that, you know, the media perceives women and, you know, is she quote unquote pretty enough to put on camera and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, um, she's a very successful person, obviously. 
And she's, she's kind of known throughout the research that I did, her personality comes across as someone who manages to capture this kind of insecurity and also total confidence at the same time. And I think if you watch, especially 30 Rock, um, that's kind of the Liz Lemon character. She's very competent and very strong, but at the same time struggles very plainly with like a lot of issues that people are faced with. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's Tina Fey. Would it surprise anybody in this closet that when I had to apply to the advanced improv program at the Upright Citizen Brigade, we had to put down who our comedy idol was, and I put down Tina Fey. I feel like you're everybody. Yeah, everybody I, I wrote that. I was like, everybody's going to say this, but it's Tina Fey. All right, it's Tina Fey. Anyway, moving on. Next question. That's not a bad answer, yeah. is it? You know. Oh, you put Tina Fey, too. You, oh. Wait, Dylan just said he put Tina Fey, too. <gasps> Meant to be. Love. All right, awesome. I give Tina Fey five stars. Okay, so Tina Fey, five stars. Bossy Pants. Three stars. Three stars. Beep, beep, beep. All right, this week on the podcast, I had a book chosen at random from my shelf as well. This book is... Bow, bow, bow. Pow, pow, pow. Cloud Atlas. <laughs> Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell. Dylan, when you whisper, it's pretty creepy. Uh, you I guys know. can't hear what it sounds like to me, and it's haunting. <laughs> All right. So, Cloud Atlas. I shared... Yeah, what's your log line for this one? <laughs> I got one. It's not great. Oh, okay. Well, it's okay. All right. So, this is the log line I came up with. It's not the, it's not the best. Other people have written better ones. But essentially, Cloud Atlas is a series of nested stories spanning diverse characters, times, and genres that posits the disparate people are really connected by fate. This is somebody else, Wikipedia, <laughs> synopsizes it as an exploration of how the actions of individual lives impact one another in the past, present, and future as one soul is shaped from a killer into a hero and an act of kindness ripples across centuries to inspire a revolution. I like yours so much better. That one is so sycophantically toward this book, and yours is an actual description of what the book is. Well, thank you. I feel the same way about Cloud Atlas in a lot of ways that you feel about Bossy Pants, which is that there's a lot of things I really liked about it, and a lot of things I really didn't like about it. So, (laughs) this is a quote I'm just going to use to start off the review, and then I'll go through my positives and negatives. So, it's talking about how one of the characters is writing a a symphony, a sextet, in six different parts, called Cloud Atlas, the Cloud Atlas sextet, hence the name of of the book, right? I spent the fortnight gone in the music room, reworking my year's fragments into a sextet for overlapping soloists. Piano, clarinet, cello, flute, oboe, and violin, each in its own language of key, scale, and color. In the first set, each solo is interrupted by its successor. In the second, each interruption is recontinued, in order. Revolutionary or gimmicky? Shan't know until it's finished. But by then it'll be too late. (laughs) Little tongue-in-cheek. Yes. I think it I think it might be helpful for people who haven't read the book to explicitly to explain. state that it's basically a Russian doll of a book. It's like you're taking apart a Russian doll and then you're putting it back together. So we start with a story that takes place in the 1800s um, on a ship. Um, then we cut ahead to 1931 with really a char- abruptly, right? Really from, abruptly, from what like I remember it's like almost in mid sentence in some of them. You're turning the page; it's in the middle of the sentence, and all of a sudden you're in a new section. It must have been crazy to not know that going in and reading I the book. I didn't know it. You didn't it know? was very yeah. I literally thought there was something wrong with my copy of the book, and all <laughs> and all of the reviews of it are like that one on Wikipedia. No, no one says oh, the structure of this is ABC CBA. Right. And so everyone's like, it's an interlapping structure of wonder. And you're like, okay. I kind of wish I didn't know. But regardless, okay, so we cut from the 1800s 
1931 to the composer. Then we cut ahead to the 70s to a mystery, like detective story. Then you go to present day England with a sort of a comedy, I thought, of a an older man that accidentally checks himself into a retirement home. It's like a comedy, but like also a horror. Like it's, there's, it's like legitimately scary, I feel like, because he can't get out. I thought it was funny, but uh, yeah. <laughs> he, like the guy is funny, but I remember just being like scared. I don't know, old folks' homes scare me. We got from the present day to then the future um, in Korea. It's from the perspective of a replicant type character. Then we cut way into the future, sort of to the end of time. And then we go back to the replicant, and then we go back to the guy in the old folks' home, et cetera, et cetera, until we end again in the 1800s. And each story is like the first four of them you get the first half the story right then the end of the world one you get the whole and then you get the second half of the fourth story the second half of the third story and they all deal with similar themes there's themes of love there's themes of deception of escape that come up often um and all the characters have the same birthmark and the argument is that these are the same souls reincarnated in different ways over many different periods. There's even another <laughs> another connection, which is that the characters read the version that comes before. So like they were reading, like the composer reads the account of the guy on the ship and then the person in the, seven, or in the 70s reads the letter from the composer, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody is like, enraptured by the writing they're like this is the best story ever told and that happens a lot in books and movies and you're like is it the best is it really that great but i guess the argument is they are enraptured by it because it's their own story mm-hmm. that's what the book is about and you honestly like it takes a while to say but you should really know what you're going for before you start reading it i think that's really important for people listening i I, I will say that, but then, because I read it right when it came out, uh, and I didn't really, I guess it just didn't cross my mind to Google it, so I just kept reading. So it actually was really cool, because I was like, okay, I guess that was a short story that didn't go anywhere. I guess uh-huh. that was a short story that didn't go anywhere. This is a really weird book. And then you get to the one at the end of time, and you're like, okay, that one ended, cool. Uh-huh. And then the, the penny drops when you hit the one after that, and it goes back to the fourth section, and I was like, oh... So we're going to get the second half of all these stories now. Cool. So that that was truly like, you know, you said it in that quote there, like, is it gimmicky or is it art? We'll never know. I, fi- I found it honestly to be both. I was like, okay, this is a gimmick, but it's it's something I've never experienced before. It's very cool. That's a really good argument because a lot of my experience reading it was, okay, I got to get through this one story I don't like because I, I know I really like the next one. Mm, yeah. But then again, I might not have kept reading because the first story is the most boring. Yes. But then I guess when it switches up, maybe you'd be more intrigued. But okay, well, this is what Cloud Atlas is. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a typical book. And there's parts of it that do feel revolutionary that feel... Like, oh, wow, this guy really can write in every genre. He can embody lots of different voices um, and cultures, which is interesting. Um, And he's kind of, in a way, uh, showing off sounds mean, but like he's, he's demonstrating his ability. And so that's very cool. And I like the theme of intertwined fates um and sort of destiny that's interesting to me and also the power of fiction and they feel like a little revolutionary but there were certain stories i just didn't find as engaging and so it would feel like in those stories like he just had a collection of six short stories that he wanted to put together Mm -hmm. so he cut them apart and added these little connections 
and made it into a book, but it's like, do they really have anything to do with each other? Maybe not. So it would depend on the story, what my reaction is. Um, it's also, I found to be a really slow read. Oh, did you? <laughs> we had to delay the recording for the first time because I had to finish reading it. And what, what I found slow about it is that it, it feels like reading five books at once. For me, whenever I start reading a book, the first hundred pages are the slowest mm-hmm. because I have to figure out what who the characters are, what's going on, what's the premise, and get used to the voice. And so like as soon as you would get that, they would switch to another one and it just was very slow. But then the second half went more quickly because I was familiar. All of that being said... I'm going to give it three stars because I think that puts it right in the middle. Of the right good... in the middle of, of four other books that you like? Exactly. Of the four other books <laughs> in the middle. Pretty good. Three stars. How many stars did you give it, Toby? I think I gave it four stars. It sounds like I liked it more than you did. Yeah. Um, I really like his writing. I think he's an incredibly strong writer. Uh, you mentioned that he switches genres effortlessly. Yeah. And it's like... Um, you're not just reading like a ship story and then like a queer romance from back in the day and then like a taut spy thriller. They're all good versions. Of, in my mind, they were all good versions of these stories. Like, oh, mm-hmm. wow, like I would read a full book of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree a lot with you. Like the inconsistencies, like the ship story is very boring. Yeah. It's rough. Like I, I it gets better, actively though. dislike that. But the other ones are good enough and I enjoyed them enough. Um that I, it really brought me along. And mm-hmm. I became, you know, I've read several more of his books afterwards. I think he's a really good writer. I also think he's a good writer. And interestingly, he's the writer I have the most on my to-read list. <laughs> I had this one, and I have The Bone Clocks, and I have Black Swan Green, all by David Mitchell. I've read all this. Yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, I don't know if that means I like him if I or I don't like him, because <laughs> yeah, I have it, but yet. I haven't read him yet. I would say uh, for people looking to read David Mitchell, a really easy introductory book that's very short and very straightforward, uh, you know, as straightforward as he gets, is called Slade House. That one I read, and that's kind of why I got into yes, it. I really like it. It's short. It has lots of action. It's very exciting. It's a little bit scary. It's like a horror bookish. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all want to know some facts about D. Mitch? Yeah. Always. So, David Mitchell, David Stephen Mitchell, was born the 12th of January, 1969. He's published seven novels, two of which, uh, Cloud Atlas and another one called A Number Nine Dream, which was published in 2001, were both shortlisted for the Booker Prize. So, uh, David Mitchell um, has lived on and off in Japan, um, and he married a Japanese woman uh, named Keiko Yoshida, and now they live in uh, County Clark in Ireland. Mitchell's written in an essay for Random House, quote, I knew I wanted to be a writer since I was a kid. Until I came to Japan to live in 1994, I was too easily distracted to do much about it. I would probably have become a writer wherever I lived, but would I have become the same writer if I'd spent the last years in London or Cape Town or Moose Jaw or an oil rig or in the circus? This is my answer to myself. That sounds like a sequel to Cloud Atlas, like yeah. him on all those places. <laughs> yeah, I like that quote because it did sound like, yeah. yeah. So he has a speech disorder. Um, Black Swan Green, the witch is on your true list, is a semi-autobiographical story about himself because it's about a young boy in the north of England who grows up uh, struggling with stammering. Mitchell's often dropped hints here and there that he thinks of himself sort of as engaged in writing a series of interconnected novels what he calls an uber novel. Um, so there are elements, there's like lots of callbacks in his books uh, throughout that if you've read his earlier books, you'd recognize little spots or just names here and there. So this is from an interview with him. The question is, one of the things I like about your work is a real delight in how words function, how they look on a page, how they sound. 
You said Samsung is a better word than Sony. Why? This is Mitchell's answer. It ends on a hard G. Samsung. That's great. Sony, I don't know what I was thinking of, really. Because Sony becomes like a, a Yeah, verb. Sony's part of the book. Yeah, yeah, it's like a verb and a word. It's like a whole thing in the book. Sony, I don't know what I was thinking, really. Y is about the weakest letter of all. Y can't make up its mind if it's a vowel or a consonant, can it? You've highlighted something really at the heart of writing, I think. It's all about decisions. You make a thousand decisions at different levels. Structural ones, those are more macro decisions about plot, character, cliche, avoidance, better still, cliche inversion or cliche implosion. They're wonderful. Also micro decisions about where the comma goes, words. You must have noticed sometimes you know when to use maybe and when to use perhaps. There's no way on earth you could codify that rule or how you know, but you know. Or you could just say mayhaps. <laughs> mayhaps. Well, that's interesting. Um, the interviewer asks, what did you read when you were younger that allowed you to not think about high and low separately? And this is kind of after they have discussed the fact that Mitchell is obviously a very literary-minded writer, but then at the same time he has all these tropes that are sometimes considered low tropes, like strong romance plots or action, you know, stuff. Mm -hmm. And so he has said many times that he believes that, you know, good books should have both. It should have that high-minded artistic quality and then also to kind of something to get you through it. You know? mm -hmm. And his answer is, Ursula Le Guin is a fine example of a writer who is not highbrow, not lowbrow, not middlebrow, not nobrow. She is allbrow. <laughs> she, <more than, laughs> she, more than any other writer, is probably why I am a writer. Not because we write in a similar way, but because she made me ache to do what she'd done. I read The Dispossessed or Earthsea books by her, and I just breathes in. <gasps> I just feel this kind of a lust to make something that would do to other people what that had done to me. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I can't wait for... I have an Ursula Le Guin on my list, so I can't wait for that Which to one be is picked. that? Left Hand of Darkness. Oh, that's such a good one. Well, excellent facts, Toby. Okay, Andrew, do you have a game for us? Yes, I do have a game for you. This week's game is called David or Mitchell. Ooh. So for our two books this week, we had David Mitchell's work. And we had a work by Tina Fey, a comedian. And some of you may know that there is a famous British comedian whose name is David Mitchell. The Mitchell and Webb look. Of the Mitchell and Webb look. look and Peep, Peep Show. Show. Mm -hmm. And when I was researching for the game, he kept coming up instead of David Mitchell, the author. So I decided just to invite him to the party. And here's how this game is going to work. I'm going to read a name, which is either a character from a David Mitchell novel or a character David Mitchell, the comedian, has played. Hmm. I think I could be good at this. You will each get five of them, and whoever has the most at the end wins. I do have a tiebreaker in the case of a tie. So, the way I want you to answer, everyone's going to get five, so it doesn't matter who goes first. Um, but you can only say David or Mitchell. In this case, <laughs> David refers to David Mitchell, the author, oh, and God. Mitchell refers to David Mitchell, the comedian. Okay. That, okay, but like Mitchell and Webb, I can do that. Yeah, I can do that too. Toby, are you talking smack? I think I think I could be good at this because I've read many David Mitchell books and I've watched many David Mitchell shows. So, Well, Toby, yeah, we'll you see. also read The Eye of the World and then you really didn't do a good <laughs> job in the last game. Well, those we were shockingly similar names, all right? And I only read, read one out of 17 of those books. <laughs> are you suggesting oh. these names are not going to be similar, Toby? Because you better buckle in. Uh-oh. <laughs> All right, Toby's going first. Yeah. Gilbert Swinyard. That is a Mitchell. Nope, that's a David. No! It's a character <laughs> from Black Swan Green. Oh, I thought Swinyard was a funny name. Mark Corrigan. I think that's David. 
That is incorrect. That is David Mitchell's character in Peep Show. I knew it. So far, you have zero points, and God only hope this gets better. (laughs) (laughs) All right. John Hardiger. David. That is incorrect, Toby. That is a character (laughs) from the film Gunshy, played by David Mitchell, the comedian. (laughs) Bailey. Hugo Lamb. Okay, this is definitely David. That's correct. And Hugo Lamb is one of those characters that appears in two books, both Bone Clocks and Black Swan Green. Yeah. Okay, all right. Phew. All right. Crispin Hershey. Uh, David. That's correct. I thought you were going to get tricked by that. Because <laughs> uh, it's a weird name. Uh, yes, Crispin Hershey appears in the Bone Clock. So we are tied one to one. Toby has had Ooh. one more turn than Bailey, though. Ooh. Way to take me down. All right. Bailey. Dr. James Vine. Dr. James Vine Mitchell. That is correct. It is his oh. character from Jam and Jerusalem. No. Uh oh. Toby's mad. All right, Toby. Barry Crisp. Mitchell. That's correct. It is a recurring character from the Mitchell and Webb look. Yes. Jacko Sykes. Mm, David. That is correct. Jacko Sykes is also a character from the Bone Clocks. You each have one more turn. Toby, if you get this incorrect, you have no chance of winning and you will fail. Are you prepared to live with that consequence? (laughs) Mitchell. (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to hear the name? (laughs) Yes. Harold Haggerstone. Hmm. Mitchell. That is correct. Toby has stayed alive. Yes! That is his character from The Incredible Adventures of Professor Brainstorm. Okay. All right, Bailey, this is for the win. If you get it incorrect, it'll go to the tiebreak. Okay, okay. So, for one last time, David or Mitchell? Neil Bros. Bros, like... Pros, but with Stop a B. Asking questions yeah, about the pros with a B. Guess. David. That is correct, Bailey. You're the no! winner. Neil Bros Come is on. from Ghost Written. You have four out of five, right? That's crazy. You got four out of five, and Toby got three out of five. You guys didn't do that bad. You just started out poorly, both of you. Here's the thing about the games, which I absolutely love. If you think you're going to win the game, you will lose the game. Yeah, that's what I've learned. You have to have fear. You have to have fear. Fear is an integral part of the game. <laughs> Good job, Andrew. Thanks for that game. The tiebreaker was Fred Pink, if anyone knows the, who that's from. Mitchell. I'm going to say David. Bailey would have also won the tiebreaker. No. from Slade House, which Slade you claim to love, Toby. Oh. All right. Well, now's the time in the podcast where we choose books at random from our shelves to read next. It is The, the Choosening. choosening. I am irrationally excited for this one. The Choosening. Uh, so, I hope you guys are big fans of twos, and I'll explain why. Andrew, you got number 22, Death with Interruption by Jose Saramago. Oh, oh cool. Our first repeat author? Yeah. Ooh. Hey, joining the Saramago Brotherhood? <laughs> I was trying to think of a word for brotherhood that rhymed with Saramago, and I was destined to fail. And then Bailey got number two. Number two? Yep. Number two on your whole 130-whatever uh, <laughs> list. Rude. Um, number two, 
Alias Grace by Margaret Atwood. Oh. oh. Well, that ties back to the beginning of the episode with the Testaments. Whoa. Hey, Bailey, I already stole the book from her email, so I got it. <laughs> we have, the, I think we have a copy of the, this book at my house. This is one that Andrew got for me because I put it on my list after the show was going to come out. I haven't seen the show yet because I wanted to read the book first. So I'm excited. Mm. Yay. Is What's this also about like a future like fascist situation? An 1843 murder mystery. Yeah. 1843 murder mystery. Yeah. Cool. I'm I'm super excited, and then I will have to go out and buy the, the testaments and add that to the shelf, and then the cycle the continues. Cycle never yeah. All right. So next week on the podcast, we have a mini sode. We are going to be taking the quiz that you have to take to become an employee at Strand Books in New York to see if we could be employed there. Ooh. Dylan's going to be administering the quiz, and I've been told that he has pruned out all the really easy questions to make us look like fools. Oh, great. Yeah. Oh, good. Perfect. That'll be good listening. all right and then in two weeks i'll cover alias grace by margaret atwood and toby's covering v for vendetta by ellen moore spoilers it's about a vendetta (laughs) (laughs) thanks for listening to the to read list if you'd like to get in contact with us you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com follow us on goodreads at goodreads.com slash the to read list podcast we're on facebook and instagram at the to read list podcast and on twitter at to read list pod if you enjoyed this podcast, please go on uh, your podcast rating system and rate us five stars. It really helps us get the word out about it and uh, lets us know that you love us. And if you like what you heard, please tell a friend who you think would also like the podcast. Word of mouth is the best way for us to get new listeners. And, you know, why not? All right. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you next week. Happy reading. Books, books, books. books, books. books. books.